My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, an American icon and a trailblazer who left in his wake countless conspiracy theories and alleged sightings. But what's beneath this layer of stardom, the white jumpsuits and the diamond studded belts? Was Elvis a mystic or a shaman? A modern day Dionysus or Hermes? Could he have dabbled in something darker? Some say he made a deal with the devil. Others say he was an alien walk-in. And on today's podcast, the great Miguel Connor of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, the Astronosis Conference, and the GodAboveGod.com joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the esoteric side of Elvis Presley. When Miguel Connor isn't producing his amazing podcast, Aeon Byte, or getting together some of the most intrepid minds in the fields for his Astronosis Conference, he takes time to write books. He's written many books. Uh, one of them is in the works. It's titled American Magician, and it's all about Elvis. We're going to be talking about the details of this book, and I'm sure many of you, whether an Elvis fan or not, are going to learn a lot. And please stick around for the extended outro if you're not on the patreon sign up now or on substack to hear the full extended interview and the extended outro where i go deep and look into whether elvis was a freemason we find out the details of an alleged ufo abduction that took place at graceland thank you for tuning in to the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast now enjoy this conversation with aeon bites miguel connor the Christ consciousness and that Jesus was possibly one of many great souls in the world trying to help humanity like Elvis suddenly believed oh yeah Zoroaster Buddha all these guys and Jesus is one of them and he could be part of it like every human to wake up to their Christ consciousness again he read all these like mystic Christian books like the Gospel of Thomas and some stuff by Manly P. Hall. When he realized that Jesus didn't have to fit in Christianity, he was off to the races and he began to study numerology. He studied astrology. He began to meditate. He began to do ceremonial magic. He just, he just went crazy. And so for years he became this just secret occultist. It wasn't secret because 
Everybody hated it around him because he drove. They knew that they were going to lose him. There were a couple of times when Elvis was like, fuck this, I'm going to go and be a monk. All right. And here we are with Miguel Connor. Miguel, great to have you back on the show. The folks know who you are, thanks to the introduction they just heard. But you've been working on a really incredible project. I've heard a little bit about it on your awesome podcast, Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. Of course, folks can go and check out the God Above God com to find out more about that i'm also a patreon subscriber so i highly recommend people support aeon bite and get the extra content there but i've heard your research about elvis so let's let's get into it first of all how are you today and second of all uh, tell us how you, you came across elvis and how this became a part of you know what you've been researching because you're you've been writing a lot yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's always cool to be on your podcast and your welcome to your nightmare, as the song goes, but I do like your dream. Well, the truth is I never, all my life, I never really liked Elvis at all. That's the thing where sometimes you are called and like Jonah, you get thrown in the belly of the whale or the big fish and... All my life, I was, I think part of the book starts out with, there's a scene in Pulp Fiction where Mia is telling Vincent Vega, John Travolta and Uma, the Uma Thurman character before they, they go on their ill-fated date. Um, and she says, there's only two types of people in this world, and those are Elvis people and Beatles people. And who you are says a lot about you. And I always thought I was a Beatles guy. And all my life, I thought Elvis was just basically the musical equivalent of Big Mac or Mountain Dew. And he represented the excesses and shallowness and consumerism of American culture. And boy, was I so wrong, so completely wrong. I mean, as time went by, you get older, you start listening to history, you appreciate the past, you go, okay. This guy was really a foundation of not just pop culture, but really American culture. He was he was a legend. People like he directly influenced people like John Lennon and David Bowie, the Clash, Elton John. I mean, over and over again, he woke so many people up to this sort of to this rock and roll. But then I appreciated him. I remember reading a book in 2014 and having the writer Gary Tillery on the show, and he talked about his book does mention some of uh, Elvis's occult leanings. And it was just, I just filed it under, ah, oh, there's some, you know, rock stars were into weird things, right? Jimmy Page was into Thelema, David Bowie was into Gnosticism, the usual stuff. The Rolling Stones were into Satanism for a while. It's just what they do. But then last summer and remember I, I still didn't know anything about elvis one biography and that was it didn't really care for his music i did ayahuasca the very intense sessions in portugal with santo diamond church and suddenly he, he was in my head and i could not shake elvis presley i watched the bi the biopic but again that's it a one biography and I watched the Elvis movie and suddenly he was everywhere just not synchronicities but just in my head things kept coming up and last fall I remember dressing up like Elvis in Halloween I never dress up for Halloween 
I, I went for like two months where I could not stop listening to his music in the car while working out. It's just like this uncontrollable urge and dreams. And I was like, oh, my God. And so last February, suddenly I just said, okay, I surrender. I surrender. I'm going to write a biography about Elvis. And with no knowledge, I just sat down there in a, on a cold evening and I started just writing this biography and everything came out. And this just this last August, a big publisher has accepted the book. I recently came back from Memphis to uh, turn in photographs and extra research. And the book should be out in about a, a year. And people are going, well, what's this book? Well, this book right now is tentatively called America's Magician. And <laughs> my claim is that Elvis Presley is, among many things, the greatest occultist magician and shaman of Western culture, bar none. I mean, whether you think Crowley, Rudolf Steiner, John D, they were just amateurs compared to him. And I look forward to the debates, just like I, I look forward to debating Elvis fans, because as you know from your family, they are, uh, yeah, they're pretty uh, orthodox. They're pretty fundamentalist when it comes to, to Elvis, but they're wrong about everything. He was a man that was deeply steeped in occultism. He was a devotee of Madame Blavatsky, Yogananda, Manly P. Hall. He was a, almost a scholar. He was so well-read. Whenever he'd go on tour or anywhere he went, Vegas, Hawaii, he always had a group of workers that would carry 200 occult books, and he would just consume them. He was so into occultism. He was a natural magician. He could manipulate weather. He could manipulate matter. He was a mystic. He could leave his body, read minds. He had prophetic abilities. He was a natural healer. He could heal people in insane ways and that are out of this world. He had several extraterrestrial encounters. I mean, not only was he an occultist, but he was kind of like you and I. He was a high weirdness, red-pilled pseudo-truther, you know what I mean? He was into the whole conspiracy theory in the 60s. He didn't. He thought immediately that JFK, had. there was not one gunman who killed him. He thought Bruce Lee had been assassinated. He thought the Vatican was hiding secrets. He thought the U.S. government was hiding aliens. I mean, he was way ahead of the curve when it comes to conspirituality, if you would. And... The book goes even other things, showing how he was America's uh, shaman, how he basically created Ameri modern American culture, how if we want to save this country, we just we really need to go back to Elvis because he does represent both what's hideous and holy about American culture. There is such a thing as the American psyche, and we've lost it. I compare him to Philip K. Dick because... Both have some striking parallels, and both influence really changed the world. And they, that's it. And I know I just went on a tangent, but I just get excited about America's Magician. No, you set us up great for our conversation, because, yeah, I've heard a little bit about the book from previous interviews you've done. And honestly, when you know Elvis came to mind from the Conspiracy Podcast perspective, I you know, the first thing that I can really think of hearing Elvis in this context is like the, you know, faking his death and you know, the sightings afterwards. And that may be what people expect when they see Elvis, you know, in the title of this episode. But I was so stunned and really impressed with 
the you know detail that you shared about Elvis's mystical side. So I did a little digging. I have some notes that you know maybe you've come across this information, but I want to talk about Elvis's birthplace and where the story begins because there's some weird things about Elvis's birth that I think a lot of people might not know. I, I certainly didn't know it. But one thing that I found out is in Tupelo, Mississippi, where he was born, the Naz, the Natchez Trace runs through there. And, you know, this is a ancient path, right? Native American tribes have been going up and down it. The early settlers of the area called this path the Devil's Backbone. And mm-hmm. another interesting point is on the Devil's Backbone, there are the far mounds, and that's spelled like the way Pharaoh is spelled, P-H-A-R-R, and those date back to A.D. 1 to 200, so they're far older than a lot of the other uh, mounds that we see in the area, and it's kind of interesting, you know, just in, in line with some of the things we talked about the last time you were on the show as far as, like, the synchromystic landscape goes, Elvis was certainly born in a possibly charged place, right? I mean, they say that the far mounds are some of the most important mounds uh, of their age. Who knows if that played into his, you know, early anomalous, you know, birth. But before I spill the beans, please tell us, you know, what went down when Elvis was born and what were, how did that play into the rest of his life? Yeah, that's interesting too. I mean, yeah, I do deal with a little bit of the history of Tupelo. Now, I must say before I go forward, obviously Elvis was a conspiracy theory industry Long before, I mean, you remember when we were young, you'd see the tabloids. Elvis was an alien. I mean, it was all the time. There were many documentaries. There's books. I mean, it was huge in the 80s and 90s. And But my research is always avoids. I mention in his death sort of the sensationalistic books that have come out. But when it comes to him being a, a mystic and a magician, I go through the source. Basically, I go through... Uh, Everybody that was around him, Priscilla Presley, the Memphis Mafia, parents, friends. So everything I mentioned in the book is corroborated by many people who saw it and included them in their bios or stories. So I should say that. But the two things is uh, we when Elvis was born and he was born with January 8, 1935, same day David Bowie was born. This was the Great Depression. And it was a brutal time. Elvis was part of the generation that gets forgotten, like the Gen X generation has been forgotten. You've got the, you know, the greatest generation, and then you've got the baby boomers, but people forget there's a generation in the middle called the silent generation. And that's the generation that they didn't go to war. They weren't adults during the Great Depression, but they were children. So they were really affected by this as children. On the other side, once the war ended, in the 50s, they started becoming teenagers. So there's a mentality to this generation, if you want to talk about it in a little bit. But when Elvis was born, Tupelo was, as somebody wrote, the the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. It was, I mean, we're talking, when I research it, this is like North Korea poverty. In In Mississippi, In the Great Depression, it was bad. It didn't matter if you were white, black, or there were Lithuanian Jewish communities. It didn't matter Irish. 
you it was bad and he was born in this grinding destructive mind you know soul suffocating poverty of mississippi when he was born at home because obviously his parents couldn't afford a doctor except to come later they couldn't afford a hospital doctor to come later uh once he was coming out of the canal they lived in a house with had no indoor plumbing uh, no indoor heat. It was just on stilts, a small house that Elvis's dad built. And during the birth, it was a hard birth for his mother, Gladys. She was conceiving twins. And Vernon went outside to have a cigarette while, during this long labor while Gladys was with two friends or relatives who were playing, who were playing, playing the part as helping her deliver it. And he saw a blue light came and flooded the whole place. Everything went dark. The coyotes, the wind, everything went silent. And Vernon was like, just sat there and freaked out and just like ran in the house. But then as soon as he ran in the house, this terrible thing happened. And before, as he was running in the house, there was two, two little like dolls that they had, ceramic dolls, and one fell and broke. And when they went, Elvis... His brother Aaron was born for, first, and he died. He died. He was stillborn. He died. He was dead. And 35 minutes later, Elvis came out, and it was a huge tragedy. And there again, they were so poor and freaked out. They actually put Elvis like in the oven under warm because they were freaking out. And eventually, Gladys lost a lot of blood. The doctor came and said, you got to go to the hospital. She lost her ability to have children, but Elvis survived. And this was a huge crushing thing. It's like I always tell people ask, why was Elvis doomed? It's like he was doomed from the start. That because he lost his twin and his research has shown there is something called a twinless survivor. Those who lose their twins are very close. When you lose a twin, you lose like half of your soul. It's the same with when you lose a twin at childbirth, but you grow up with this horrible sense of guilt because Philip K. Dick lost his twin sister when he was born. And both Elvis and, and Phil had this, what you call uh, survivor guilt. They were always wondering, why me? Why did my sibling die? As Philip K. Dick said when they asked him about his sister who died, he said, well, I guess I got all the milk. This sense of, yeah, horrible sense of guilt that something's wrong, that you're lost. And twinless survivors, whether it's Philip K. Dick, Elvis Presley, or Liberace, end up being, in a way, very seekers, very philosophical, but they end up and very artistic, very driven, very flamboyant in how they express themselves, whether it's the writing or performance. But they also are very self-destructive. They lean towards drug addiction. They lean. They cannot have. Uh, deep contact with other people because of the loss that they suffered the trauma and and again in those days there was no therapy for this or the concept so elvis grew up kind of screwed all that way and this brother twin just like with philip k dick became a his daemon both would speak in their heads both would guide them both would, they would have dreams and visions of this dead twin to help him out through the good times and bad times. But again, the weight of it eventually, you might say, eroded both Philip K. Dick and Elvis, which led to their destruction. That's one way. So losing his twin is was a huge thing to most Elvis fans. Oh, 
he should have just gotten away with it. It was just a baby. It's like, no, you don't understand it. It was, it really shaped Elvis forever. It was like his boat and Philip K. Dick. It was their one driving thing was, why did I lose my twin? Where is my twin? And and why do I feel so guilty that I need to self-medicate all the time? And as I mentioned, Mark, the, the poverty as we're finding out from, you know, Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, poverty is traumatic. And poverty is a trauma that gets passed down through generations. And Elvis growing up so dirt poor was also a trauma that really affected him and drove him for both good things and bad things. It became something that he became very... He made, you know, in our days, billions of dollars, but he also threw it all away. He was a workaholic because he was always, you know, there's part of you that doesn't want to be poor again. So you're driven and you're feeling guilty and you're wondering why I got rich. But it is a generational trauma. So those two things, just to begin with, both doomed and saved Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible that archetype of the twin is, you know, one that's already rich with symbolism, but the you know, having one twin in the afterlife and one in the living, I'm sure opens up some sort of channel, a gateway, if you will. But the the idea that Elvis, you know, had this kind of mystical connection, I think really is more pronounced when he goes to Memphis, right? Because there was the whole hurricane or tornado in Tupelo that, you know, he was miraculously spared, right? He was just a baby at the time, but hundreds of people died. It was one of the worst tornadoes in U.S. history. And Still he, the top 10, yes. Yeah. Well, and he was spared, and I don't know what circumstances led the family to go to Memphis, but clearly there, there was something that was meant to be there because Memphis is, you know, this kind of cultural epicenter with all this really interesting energy and the music scene and, you know, just a nexus point, a melting pot, if you will. You know, Memphis obviously is from the Egyptian, from the, I think, the, the city that looks at two lands. In Egypt, it meant, you know, it was a place that would divide upper and lower Egypt. And of course, Memphis also was this place where North and South met back in the 50s. And it was uh, it was almost as mystical again as Egypt. And as I say, these Egyptian hermetic motifs in my book keep showing up. Well, that was like, for example, most people don't know, he wore an ankh all the time. That was one of his symbols that he liked. And of course, he was fascinated with it, with Egyptian mythology and other things he died as a, i mean there's so many synchronous he died when he was 42 and 42 is an egyptian holy number it's the the 42 negative sins that mod will ask you out in the afterlife or osiris 42 sins that you have not committed and that's what's going to judge you in the end there's so many these weird egyptian motifs keep coming up in elvis's life and but even before tupelo they moved because it was Poverty drove them. They, they knew Tennessee was a step up because, again, Elvis, from my book, he got this sort of second sight from his mother's family. And maybe it's Cherokee. Maybe it was some sort of Jewish mystic thing. We don't know. But his mother would see visions. She would see demons at night. And she would see things that weren't there. She had a, that second sight, which Elvis was given. He got it. And... 
she was really into uh, Pentecostalism Christianity, which is we're finding out is just American shamanism, right? You get into an altered state of mind. Instead of, uh, you know, Dionysus or Osiris taking over, you let the Holy Spirit, and these people are just like shaking and hitting each other. And you go into yeah an altered state of consciousness. And she was so obsessed with going to church, even when she had the she was pregnant with Elvis and Aaron. That's probably all they ever heard when they were in the belly. This constant drumming and guitar playing. Sometimes they'd have service out in the woods, and they're screaming at the Holy Spirit, and they're screaming in tongues. That kind of energy really affected him. But uh, the problem too, Mark, is that. When Elvis went because of Aaron dying and his mother not being able to have children, she became very overzealous and overbearing with Elvis. And they in that right there, as we're finding is, you know, we call it helicopter pattering today. But in those days, it's called lethal enmeshment when your mother is so overprotective and makes the boy basically the husband or the main lover or love of the house. That becomes destructive because children who grow up that way are always in this duality. They're either little children or they're like caretakers. And that was Elvis. He was either taking care of people or being destructive, shooting TVs and popping pills. But those people like that end up also with high addiction rates, bad in relationship, self-destructive. But they're also very artistic, very driven and very mystical. And this abusive relationship they had also shaped Elvis. I mean, he as a teenager, he would sleep in his bed with his parents, and they would make gooey eyes. And it was it was unfortunate. At one point, Elvis's dad got arrested and spent time in jail, and they were basically homeless. So it was just Elvis and his mother. So this, obviously, I mentioned about relationship, but the poverty that just would not stop in the. There were some nights all they had was water and cornbread. This is America, right? That's all they had to eat. That's how poor they were. Eventually, they went to Memphis because there were more opportunities, and things did get better as Elvis became a teenager. Yeah, that's amazing. So did Elvis have any signs of this kind of outside of his mother's uh, you know, mystical sight? Did he have any signs of, you know, this kind of knack for the mystical side of life at a young age, aside from maybe his budding musical talent? Oh, yeah. I mean, he obviously he would have visions. He was talking to his twin right. all the time. He was a terrible sleepwalker. He was tormented by night terrors. But one thing that he did have, and he admitted it to a girlfriend when he was just breaking big, he was 18, 19 or 20. He told a girlfriend he went out, they visited a friend at the hospital who had leukemia. They were sitting at the lake and Elvis, one thing he would do is just stare out into space and just sort of blank out. And his girlfriend's like, what are you doing? He's like, I can travel through the planets and the skies. I can leave my body and do it. The only person I tell is my mother, because if we say that, then our church is going to ostracize us in our community. But he was already admitting that there was these things he could do. And people always talk about from even teenager, he had a way of reading people's minds. He like knew what you're going to say. He knew exactly how you were feeling. He could read the room and understand what was going on. So he had that second sight, but it was only 
because of his background, uh, because of the society he lived, it was only till his, what, late 20s, 30s, when he really broke into the occult that he really started flexing his muscle, if you know what I mean. But from all his life, he certainly had this ability, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he was born in January, right? And I heard you mention that he was interested in astrology. Did that occur when he became like an initiate or a self-initiate, or did he know about, you know, that sort of thing when he was younger? Like, did that play into to his persona at all? No, again, he was stuck in, or he stayed in the Christian matrix, the uh, fundamentalist Christian matrix, but some things happened that dislodged them from there. One was when he became famous, Christianity turned against him. We have to remember when Elvis hit it big. Like I say, you know, Taylor Swift is uber famous. Elvis was uber famous, but he was he changed culture and he was also uber hated. The establishment hated him with a passion. Right. Frank Sinatra was like, he's just a flash of you know, the old guard hated him. The government hated him because he was making women independent and sexually, you know, curious. He was, he changed culture in ways that uh, single-handedly, you might say. So the Christianity changed. His own pastor blasted him. Billy Graham said he was demonic. And he was completely hurt because he's like, I'm just trying to write some songs. You know, I'm just trying to play some tunes. So that made him really angry at uh, the church. But he always felt, well, the church has let me down. It's bullshit. At least I got Jesus. So I'll stick with it. But then when he went into the army, tragically, his mom died because they were separated. That's the great irony. I write how Elvis kind of made a deal with the devil with Robert Johnson. And we can talk about that. But he wanted to get rich to help his mother and father. But being separated from his mother, she couldn't take it. And she just just collapsed, her health went to shit. He was heartbroken because in those days, he was in the military, and it was like, oh, your mother died. All right, you get two weeks to grieve, and then we're shipping your ass to Germany. And he was just broken. He was a broken man because he'd lost, he was so close to his mother. So he began to search, like he he read like, are you familiar with Khalil Gibrains, the prophet? When he was in Germany, somebody, he remembered that his girlfriend had read it, and it really saved him. He got into aromatherapy to help him with his stress and all that. But then he came back to the United States. He did curry, started doing karate in Germany and just sort of playing with things. But it was only when he came back and he started doing movies that he became really disillusioned with his life because he was like, all right, I lost my mom. I've got more money than God. The whole world loves me. I'm, the, I'm already the goat. Even though I'm alive, I mean, he's already like, He's like Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan in the middle of their career. They're already the best they were ever was. And everybody knew it. It wasn't like even disputed. But he hated it. He hated doing B-movies. He wasn't satisfied with his music. He wasn't satisfied with his fame. And he met a hairdresser by pure luck, Larry Geller, who was really a mystic. And he was like, you know, he was a... He was initiated into Yogananda. He was just a deep spiritual guy, and he he was cutting Elvis's head, hair, head. 
And Elvis just turned around just out of nowhere. He wasn't said, what are you into? And the guy said all these things. And Elvis was like, this is what I'm looking for. And he got Larry to bring him all these books and he read them and he was off to the races because he realized reading theosophy and all that, that there was something called the Christ consciousness and that Jesus was possibly one of many great souls in the world trying to help humanity. Like Elvis suddenly believed, oh yeah, Zoroaster, Buddha, all these guys, and Jesus is one of them. And he could be part of it like every human to wake up to their Christ consciousness. Again, he read all these like mystic Christian books like the Gospel of Thomas and some stuff by Manly P. Hall. When he realized that Jesus didn't have to fit in Christianity, he was off to the races and he began to study numerology. He studied astrology. He began to meditate. He began to do ceremonial magic. He just... He just went crazy. And so for years, he became this just secret occultist. If you would, it wasn't secret because everybody hated it around him because he drove. They knew that they were going to lose him. There were a couple of times when Elvis was like, fuck this. I'm going to go and be a monk. And, uh, and one time he wanted to be a Christian monk. Another one, he wanted to be a Buddhist, a Hindu monk. And he got talked out of it. But the Colonel and Priscilla and the Memphis, the whole industry that depended on him, they were not happy. Plus, he drove them crazy because there was the old Elvis with his entourage of 50 to 100 people. It was like, let's play flag football and ride motorcycles. And suddenly there was this Elvis like, we're all going to sit with candles and meditate and talk about our feelings and see what the spirits are doing and they drove him crazy. But yeah, by the mid-60s or early 60s, before the hippies, before the Beatles, Elvis was like knee-deep into mystic studies of all kinds. Well, and that's partly why the show is named what it is. And it didn't really occur to me until, you know, maybe a couple hundred episodes into the show and my Norwegian friend Al kind of put some European sophistication behind it one day and was like, yeah, it is kind of a philosophical thing that you're describing. And it does seem like Elvis had that moment where, you know, the people around him thought he was kooky for opening up his mind and, and, and exploring these deeper things, which is, it's so interesting, you know, especially when you understand like the etymology of celebrity and star and how, where that even comes from that, you know, people you know, like Elvis may just inherently be inclined to these things in that position. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to talk about this deal with the devil that you alluded to. And in my little research, asking my own personal silent generation and baby boomer generation in my family what they thought of Elvis, they they said, what, well, my grandfather, he said that one thing that I should know is that when Elvis appeared on, I think he said the the Dick Van Dyke show? I don't remember which talk show oh, he said. Probably. Yeah, Ed Sullivan, one of those, that they had to frame the camera uh, above his waist because it was too salacious, too edgy to show below his hips. So if you consider that now in 2023 standards where you have, you know, all kinds of depravity just right there in front of you, click a button away, it is kind of interesting to to think of him as this, you know, ushering in this you know new wave of public ritual and occultism and through music but you know what exactly happened in memphis with the, this deal with the devil 
Well, like like I talk in the book, he I talk about Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson is considered history's first rock star. And there's, of course, the story that he was did not play guitar or whatever. And he disappeared for a while. Then when he showed up, he was this virtuoso who played this music that just blew everybody away. So there's, of course, in the blues community, they thought he'd gone to this place. I visited this place about a month ago in Mississippi where he met the devil and he made a deal with the devil for all this talent. And um, obviously he then later died. Nobody knows how he died. He might have been poisoned. It might have been some sexual transmitted disease, but he died pretty young, but he became a foundation for modern music. And he died, at, as they say, at the crossroads. So this theme of the crossroads keeps coming up. And Robert Johnson died on August 16. Elvis died on August 16, I think, 30-something years later. And I talk about how, Mrs. again, Memphis was always considered the crossroads of the place. And the crossroads is always a place where the shaman and the trickster are. And this plays into the ideas of the blues because... There are two forces that shaped Elvis. Elvis always said, I carry heaven and hell with me. And that's how I, and I am in the middle of them. These are my two forces. People were like, what the hell is this dude talking about? Because he, two things influenced. One was the blues. Now, as I talk about Robert Johnson, the blues was really about the devil. Now, this is not, you know, the Christian, your grandmother, Satan. This is more of a trickster being it's a almost an import from african tricksters or animist spirits that became came to the united states and then again in the blues especially in the early 20th century there's all these songs about deals with the devil's helping me out or he's screwing i mean over and over and of course the blues is an expression about people that are oppressed people that are homeless people that are hurting in this new land it really expresses it's a continuation of black folklore here in the United States. And this music became very huge for Elvis and everybody else, all the other, you know, parents of rock and roll. The other one, which people don't want to admit, and even Chris Knoll writes very well about it, but rock music is basically gospel music. It is Pentecostal music. And even when it came out, Critics would go to rock concerts like this is like a Holy Spirit tent revival. People shaking and they're, you know, going on altered states of mind and all that. And people were already saying that we're already angry at Pentecostals because they would say that Pentecostalism in the 50s was just mixing sex and salvation, which it was. Prince is a good one. Prince was always this kind of guy who was trying to reconcile sex and religion because he was a Jew. Jehovah's Witness, but that's what rock was. It was directly influenced by Pentecostalism and black and white gospel music. And this was really the foundation. So Elvis had the devil with the blues and he had the angels with the gospel. Obviously others very influenced by gospel and blues. We got Johnny Cash, Carl, Carl Perkins, B.B. King, John, was it Lewis? Uh, Jerry, Johnny Lewis, what was his name? Or whatever, but this whole these this generation, the silent generation, who basically gave us rock and roll, were so influenced by this shamanistic altered state spirituality, blues and gospel that came together as rock and roll, and it was very magical. 
very about spirits and devils and all that. And it became rock and roll, which people said at the beginning was this sort of transgressive new form of spirituality. And the crossroads is always there. The devil's at the crossroads. So is the trickster. So this theme of the crossroads and Elvis's life and those early rock stars is always there throughout the book. Right, right. And as you pointed out, Memphis is the veritable crossroads in this story. And Elvis plays this role that seems to be more trickster than devil. Not that the two can't be one and the same at some points, but they are separate in the, in you know, many ways, but when it was the Lord of the crossroads, I mean, you have to look at how America changed. I mean, well, we can talk about it. I I I was going to ask to, if you could elaborate on the term, that you described Elvis as this American egregore, because I think it plays in really nicely with what you're just about to say. Yeah, you have to look again at the silent generation and how much America changed. After World War II, this generation that became teenagers came to a completely brand new world. This was the new right empire called the United States, Eisenhower's America. They came around and suddenly there was more money than God. And the older generations had no problem doting on them. As people have said, the word teenager didn't exist until the 50s because this generation who'd fought in World War II and survived the uh, Great Depression were like, we want to give our children everything we didn't want. They gave them all this money and suddenly these teenagers had power. But not only were they confronted with this all this money and wealth and brightness, they were also confronted with a world that had never seen this technology like before. Again, as Chris Knoll writes, you've got humanity sort of put, but oh, Sumerians. Okay, we went up. Okay, then 4,000 put, but after the 1940s, it just shoots up like it's never before. Nobody can explain, of course. People explain it all the time, aliens, Nazis. I mean, but nobody really knows what happened. Suddenly, we had transistor radios. We had satellites. We had rockets. We had jukeboxes. We had, I mean, all this technology was just exploding. And that shrunk the world and gave these teenagers a look at what the world was like never before. The problem is in this new brave world where the United States was suddenly, instead of a republic, was a mighty empire. There were threats. All of a sudden, you know, the communists that were our allies are suddenly our mortal enemies. All of a sudden, there's nuclear bombs that could end civilization. All of a sudden, we have mass media that can see distant lands and people like the Chinese and the Koreans who might be a threat. All of a sudden, there's all these... UFO sightings everywhere in Russia and the United States. So this generation was completely freaked out and they became very kind of what you call stoic and pessimistic and epicurean at the time. In other words, they said, shit, this world can end any time. The Reds could invade, the bombs could come, our great empire might collapse. At the same time, we've got all this money and stuff, so let's enjoy it. But What they started doing is they started opening up their minds to other cultures and histories and art forms. In other words, they started going for black and Hispanic music. They started to be more accepting of Eastern traditions and so forth. And they became 
this new generation. And Elvis, you might say, was a spearheaded guy. Not only was not only to change the psyche, but with Elvis leading them, suddenly women decided that they wanted to be more liberated. I mean, he was like Dionysus, where he went, women's kundalini came up, and women became more independent, more understanding of themselves. He could cause riots with women and everything, and he really changed the way the genders interacted, plus the way people wanted to listen music. He he came and he brought, as I say, the Lord of the Crossroads. We came into this old world of Frank Sinatra and all that, to this world where suddenly jazz and blues and black music and L.A. gang music was popular, and he mixed it all together. He came into this world where suddenly the civil rights appeared when Elvis was going. He was always at the crossroads of this great change from America to post-world America. And Elvis might say was the Pied Piper, the shaman, the trickster that led us because the trickster is all about change and going into a new world, a new era. That's what a trickster, he guides us through the portals as a people and as a person. And Elvis was that person. And I talk about in the book, the, suddenly you had this American dream egregore, Eisenhower America, where different cultures could meet, where everybody had money and technology could help you. Highways could get us to places and mass media could show us the world and history. And you had this massive egregore. And who represents that egregore? Elvis. He's like the Pied Piper leading us to the best and worst of what America would become. Yes. We were a kind people. We became a multicultural, open-minded people, an artistic people, innovative. But we also became a people of excess, consumerism, materialism. So the good and the bad, that was Elvis when he came out in the 50s and 60s. He was the shaman that brought us. The shaman is a spiritual troubleshooter of the tribe. He's the one that heals the tribe and goes into the dark places, the crossroads, to bring spiritual and medical and psychological insights for the tribe. So he became America's shaman. He was the one that guided us through this new identity of the great American empire. Does that make sense? And again, it's no, all absolutely. crossroads. It's all yeah. America, how it was before and how it came be, became then. Right. He was the devil. He was the trickster. <laughs> right, right. In 36 to 77, right? That, I mean, or 35 to 77. I mean, that is the middle, most turbulent period of the last, you know, 100 years or the, the 20th century. Or the most change this, any, any civilization has gone through. Any yeah. civilization. <laughs> Yeah, and I wonder, you know, the thought of history going in cycles has come to mind. I wonder if we're in a similar period now, you know, leading into some sort of economic downturn that, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not hoping for a great war to come like it would have, what, 90 years ago, right? 80 years ago, somewhere around there. So, yeah, geez, I hope... 
if we do, we at least get another really cool Elvis figure. But there has been talks that people like David Bowie maybe carried the torch for England. And that's kind of funny because I just watched Liquid Sky, which certainly seems to be inspired by David Bowie. But I was inspired to watch it because Chris Knowles wrote about it in his one of his blog posts on 1983. And he said, you know, 40... 40 years there's something about 40 years and you know 1983 and 2023 like it's kind of like in a similar way this interesting period of change and it got me thinking about that and i know you pointed out the numerology or the symbolic aspects around the number 42 which is how long elvis lived but it had some deeper meaning behind it right did we touch on that yet well, 42, yeah, it definitely has a lot of meaning in occultism. I go in the book, but again, I, I try to stick to Egyptian, Hermetic, right. I'm the Gnostic guy, so that's where I want to go. But there's definitely a lot to that. And yeah, I mean, as I, I'm i starting to realize David Bowie was just Elvis 2.0. I mm. mean, and again, nothing I'm saying is sens sensationalistic. This is from the mouth of David Bowie. David Bowie's hero was always Elvis. And suddenly, then you start realizing, well, it makes perfect sense. I mean... Although David Bowie flipped it, he started out with the jumpsuits and the makeup and all that, like Elvis became. And then he went into sort of the crooner stage in the 80s, if you remember. So he did flip it. But everything about David Bowie is just Elvis Redivivus. I mean, even his last album was called Black Star. And then suddenly you, re you realize, you find out Elvis sang a song called Black Star about death. And you start seeing all these little hints coming around this connection. And Elvis, again, obsessed with science fiction. You know, Stanley Kubrick right. was his favorite director, 2001. He had extraterrestrials encounters. You start realizing Elvis was really a sci-fi guy and a star guy into astrology. And he could leave his body just as David Bowie. Did you know that, you know, the song Golden Years? By the David Bowie sang? No. Okay, okay. Well, that was one of Bowie's biggest hits in the 70s. He wrote it for Elvis. And one of the stories goes, is like he wrote it, is like this is perfect for Elvis because it's kind of a, a club, kind of a crooner song. And he, But he was too shy to go to Elvis, so he had his wife, Angela, say, can you take this song for Elvis? And Angela got gold feet, too, because they were both so gaga about Elvis. But then in 1977, six months before Elvis died, Elvis reached out to David Bowie and asked him to produce his next album. Imagine what an album that would have been. Wow. But wow, unfortunately, you know, one story ended. But I think David Bowie would have instinctually found what made Elvis and rebooted it. We would have seen in the late 70s a completely upgraded rebooted elvis presley with david bowie's help well who but. knows maybe elvis did help out with some of david bowie's production there was that ufo sighting over over david bowie's concert that one time and maybe elvis was in the the spaceship there certainly has been some sightings that would lead you to think that but before we get into the sci-fi aspects of Elvis's intrigue, you mentioned Black Star, and that made me think of Tupelo again, because I found out that Tupelo, 
that comes from the name of a tree that grows in the area and that tr tree is locally known as black gum tree so you could yeah. say that elvis was born in black gum mississippi in one sense of the meaning right so there there adds a little bit of alchemy implied and you know as you pointed out, he said it himself, he had hell and heaven on his side. And I think there's like a yin yang, at least, that comes to mind for me. But when it comes to Taoism, too, yeah. well, he knew about the Nag Hammadi library. I mean, you name it, he knew it. Right. And there, there are so many interesting avenues to go down. And you mentioned that Elvis had one of the first black belts in america there were only like a hundred people at the time who had a black belt in karate when he did and he kind of popularized martial arts before people in a who country of 170 million at the time so yeah that is 100 black belts well and oftentimes bruce lee and and maybe others get tons of credit for popularizing martial arts but you point out that elvis kind of does this and martial arts has this shamanistic spiritual background to it very much connected to Taoism with eastern martial arts and yeah it's fascinating i just had a irish catch wrestler on the podcast and a lot of what he was talking about had in my mind at least taoist similarities you know the things that the celts and the druids would philosophize about but it's interesting i forget what we were just touching on but another thing you mentioned about elvis's interest was he read urantia which i have that in the book heap behind me and it's quite a mind-boggling read. It reads like sci-fi, but it was written sometime in the 1800s. I think it was probably even before Jules Verne. So you have to wonder, you know, how they were contemplating nebulas and this whole galactic federation of alien civilization and throwing it all in there with the Bible. I mean, it's really a crazy read. What Did Elvis say, you know, what he thought about this book or just that he was reading it? No, he, he, re, he read Urantia, he read the Book of Enoch, he read Chariots of the Gods, Von Daniken. So he was open about the ancient astronaut theory. He had no problem with that. But he kept on the theories, you know, mm. the theory that the aliens are working with the government, the theory that they're stopping governments from just nuking each other. He kept an open mind about it. He had three or four UFO experiences, personal ones, again, this is all corroborated. He was never alone. He was, there were times when I remember, and I don't know if he was trying to, he was a big trickster. Uh, he would be what we call today a shit poster. I mean, he was always playing tricks and jokes. And he told one, so we don't know, but he told one time uh, a girl, he's like, I'm from one of the moons of Jupiter. And he described it. And he said, I am not of this world. But then again, in all earnestly, he told one time a co an actress he was working with, I am not of this world. So you don't know if he meant I'm an alien or more like the gospel of John Buddhist, like my soul belongs somewhere. But uh, he was open to all these ideas and he just kept reading and trying to find answers because he thought he was a seeker. Well, again, he lost his twin. He became the history, you know, the planet's most famous person. But he was like, so what is my role? And he thought my role is hopefully to wake up others, listen to God, and he'll have more to for me to help others. And he thought he was part of the, you know, this group, these wise people like Jesus and Buddha. And, you know, he bought into the whole Ascended Masters White Brotherhood thing and the Freemasons. So he really thought he was part of something that would make a better world and help others wake up to their potential. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned his collar 
when he started sporting the high collar, it kind of had this hidden meaning. You know, he got it from seeing this with spiritual masters who more often than not had this type of style to their clothing, which I find that fascinating. And then another interesting point about Elvis is when it comes to his UFO encounters, seems like he had more than one right i mean there was the odd light the blue light which he did meditate and visualize blue but tell us about his ufo encounters because this was a fascination that he kind of got a first-hand witness of yeah he had two miss i mean he had two mystical experiences I, again in this day and age you know the lines blur between extraterrestrial and angelic visitors but let's stick to the traditional ufo encounters that were corroborated that he wasn't alone. There may be four now that I think about it, but then there's many that people have written about beyond that. But one was the classic. He was driving. There was a time when he didn't like flying, so he would drive from Memphis to Hollywood if he needed to do a movie, and he was driving, and he would get these giant luxury vans or, you know, homes, whatever you call it, and he would drive, and in the Arizona desert, he saw these, they all saw these discs moving around and doing that, and he and his body, they all freaked out, left, went outside to look, and then they had this big argument about what was it, you know? It, the things that we talk about today, he was talking about in the early 60s, well, what if it was government equipment? Well, I ain't never seen government equipment go by. Well, what if these aliens attack us and destroy Earth? No, they're working with the government, you know, Five, you know, Southerners are in, arguing about UFOs like we would do today. And then Elvis is like, it's all going to, you know, he ends it. It's all going to work out. We, I know these guys, we can trust them. That was one. The other one was in, and I think it's Palm Springs or LA home. He was outside with his bodyguard and suddenly this light flooded the area. At first, they both thought, well, it's an helicopter or an airplane. And then suddenly they're like, this thing's not making a sound. And it's flooding everything. So they freaked out. Elvis said, go in and get the rest of the gang, the bodyguards. He went in, his friend went in. And when he came out, Elvis was gone. The light's all over the place. And they're like, oh, shit, he just got abducted. And so they're, they're running around the neighborhood. And finally, they see Elvis like three houses down on his neighbor's driveway, just chilling out looking at the sky and they're like what happened well we saw the ufo leave and elvis was like oh well the other the third one was actually at graceland with his father and with larry geller again lights came out saucers all that they freaked out and then his father said oh this reminds me of the blue light when you were born and Suddenly, Elvis was freaking out because I was like, well, am I an alien? What's going on? And yeah, blue light became part of his. Whenever he would heal people or do magic, it was always blue light. When you start looking at his songs and everything else, you realize blue appears everywhere. Yeah, that's very fascinating. I, I wonder, too, you know, you mentioned the Philip K. Dick connection if that played into it at all, because, you know, like attracts like he, he's this supercharged person who, as you, you mentioned as well, had the ability to change the weather, right? I mean, he had some strong abilities with his 
his just his mental capacities maybe he attracted these otherworldly beings or i mean if they're government craft i mean that implies a whole nother level of it and i wouldn't doubt that they would want to keep their eyes on elvis for a number of reasons but yeah can we get into the similarities between philip k dick and elvis aside from the you know the twin situation which we covered were there any other similarities between the two well, yeah. I mean, obviously the twin thing was a huge one. Again, it was different because Elvis became, he did that lethal enmeshment with his mother, which also destroyed his psyche because suddenly when she died, everybody, all he could care about was being with somebody that reminded him of his mother. And that's why he got into H.P. Blavatsky because he was like, oh my God, she looks like my, my mother. People always wonder, well, what the hell's wrong with Elvis? He was 24 and Priscilla was 14. Why is he being attracted to a young girl? Because she looked like his mother. That's the only thing that he could see when he would meet women was, are you my mother? With fellow K. Dick, it was the opposite. He hated his mother because Philip blamed his mother for the death of his sister because she didn't want to. Unlike Gladys, they didn't want to have it at the hospital. They were kind of hippies or they were ahead of, you know, more holistic people. And he thought that that was a terrible mistake. But as far as other similarities, again, one of the similarities is both were very Gnostically inclined. Obviously, Elvis, because of Yogananda, he believed that the world was an illusion. He was really into the Gospel of Thomas and the sort of Christ's divine spark within us. So was Philip K. Dick. Both were very syncretic. They were never educated or really belonged to any organization. They just threw all this occult stuff together and came up with their own ideas that were very similar. Both had very similar mystic experience. Both had you have several extraterrestrial experiences, but the one that is striking is the mystic experience. What people mostly know about Dick's 2374 encounter and the pink beams, and you saw the veil and all that. But there was one he had in the 60s, around the same time Elvis had it, where he was walking around and the sky broke open, and he saw this metallic figure looking up at the sky down at him. And this figure was just like snarling at him, basically telling him, you know, you're nothing. I am the ruler of this universe. And Philip K. Dick freaked out. Later, he kind of dismissed it. It was like, oh, I took too much drugs or I was projecting, whatever. But he basically had a Gnostic experience where he realized, because he was like, this is God. God is just telling me I'm in control and I'm evil. Elvis had a similar experience in the desert. He was driving again to Hollywood and suddenly he saw like, these clouds come about. And he ran outside, and this time it was the face of Stalin. And Stalin was doing the same thing. I am the rule, you know, I'm in control of this. Evil controls this universe. And Elvis, he had a different reaction. He's like, okay, kill me. You know, Elvis is kind of a cowboy. Kill me, mother. You know, I'm going to trust in Jesus. But these two experiences are very similar to them. And I go through others, for example. Both had this terrible a weakness that you see with baby boomers and the silent generation. I'm sure you, you do it. You've known it with your family and that it's street drugs are bad, but whatever the doctor prescribes is good. And that was their, both of their doom. They got hooked on amphetamines and other types of drugs because they had this huge blind spot 
that they just could not shake, which made no sense. But that was another thing that contributed to their doom. Both had terrible relationships with women for various reasons. Both ended up in the hospital or rehab because of their problems. Both were obsessed with science fiction. And again, as I mentioned, similar types of theology and their worldview was there. I guess the opposite was like Elvis believed in innovating technology. Again, he was he took complete advantage of television, the jukebox, all these things that were part of his fame. And even later, he always was interested in technology and how it could help humanity. Obviously, Philip K. Dick was the opposite, always warning us that technology is going to destroy us in the end. That's where they're, they're separated. There's a, probably about 10 more similarities, like, but it's strange because of all people, you would say those two. And again, both died too young, way young. Both predicted their death. I go blow by blow. I both left all these both were saying to the world, I'm going to die early, and they left plenty of evidence and wrote it down and so forth. Yeah, when you mentioned the faith in the doctors over, you know, you know psych the drill. psychedelics yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, I know the drill for sure, but I also, it brought to mind a book I recently learned about, and I don't know how old this book is, but it's about Dr. Feelgood. Have you heard of Dr. Feelgood, the doctor that was basically... JFK's kind of like personal doctor who was dosing uh, I him. I know J uh, JFK was basically a cripple too. Right. Right. And one of the things that I learned about recently through this book, and I, you know, I don't have it in front of me, so who knows what the sources are, but I, it's really compelling stuff that JFK was basically being injected by this doctor with methamphetamines. And at the time, you know, I don't know if that was even schedule anything. It wasn't an illegal substance until maybe a couple of years later. Definitely was, you know, illegal by the time Elvis was passing. But by then they had all sorts of other pharmaceuticals, you know, different ones like Pent. I forget the name of it, but it's pens, penzanine or penzatol, something like that. The Nazis developed it, and Dr. Feelgood was a part of this project, and, you know, be, not through his own will. The Nazis kind of stole his work, and he left for America. But then, yeah, became a drug dealer for the, or doctor for the celebrities, and even JFK. So I'm curious if Elvis ever got in league with him. Was it the colonel oh, yeah, that was supplying him with drugs because that's what the boomers say right is that his agents were selling uh, no, I mean, drugs he got, yeah back here he got into amphetamines in the late 50s while in the army because, okay again, he was in the army he did become a sergeant but he still had his like celebrity life mm. so he was always under a lot of stress same with philip k dick again that's another similarity both were extremely they were workaholics and they ended up self-medicating for things. But yeah, later on, he had a private physician and it was just a and it was just a disaster because he had so many health problems. He had problems sleeping, but he needed more energy. I don't know. In my days of drug abuse, it was always like, oh, I'm too high. I need to come down. Oh, I gotta be here, you know. And you end up in this deadly cycle. Philip K. Dick was more like he lived in California and people would the pharmacist would write him whatever the hell he wanted. It was just a different era, but both got themselves in a really terrible cycle of pharmaceutical addiction. And yeah, amphetamines or anything that gave them energy was certainly part of the thing that you might say cut their life short. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I did just find that book. It's uh, Dr. Feelgood, the story of uh, the doctor who influenced history by treating and drugging prominent figures, including President Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis Presley. Look at I'll that. I like read that, yeah, because um, my book deals with his, it has a Greek name that was his personal physician. But, yeah, uh, well, I, I didn't know that. I'm not like trying to put you on the spot here. It's all just coming together synchronistically. But yeah, Richard A. Lertzman is the author uh, alongside William J. Burns for anybody who wants to check that out. But I'll send you a copy of this, the PDF. <laughs> I have it here. It doesn't say, oh, Dr. Max Jacobson. That's the guy's name. So anyways, yeah, a little side tangent there. But yeah, that's a big part of the conspiracy. And a lot of times with celebrities, it seems like, especially musicians, there are forces around them that lead them to do drugs, put them in risky situations. And, you know, every case is different, but it seems more often than not that musicians are worth more to the people around them dead than alive, right? Because of the the royalties and all the other things that go when the person who's entitled to this stuff is passed away, right? So did any of that play into his passing? Because you talk about his death being ritualistic, but it seems more like Elvis was in control of his passing the way you phrased it. Yeah, he was. I mean, I, I go in detail how his death was a ritual. Mm. And he, again, he left so many hints. He told so many people. And the way he was dressed and he acted was certainly, it was, it was all just this ritual. Even the, you know, dying on the crapper, that's the throne. And people forget the only place that Elvis ever had any privacy in his life was really in the bathroom. And his bathroom was a place where he would bring like Larry Geller friends where they could actually meditate and read spiritual books in peace or do some magical practice. And the last book he read was a book on called Searching for the Face of Jesus. So his last book was about him encountering Jesus. So I go through all the details, how it was, but yeah. He was in control. He was doomed. I think there was no, and he knew he was doomed. I mean, there is something that happens in a lot of cultures where the shaman becomes addicted to drugs because he's working so hard and his body and his psyche start to break down because he's always dealing in the spirit world. And so he starts doing more drugs and eventually he just collapses and this is very common especially in the polar shamans antarctica the inuit and other traditions so blow by blow that's what he did and there's also a very important aspect of shamanism called the wounded healer the person who has the ability of the shaman is a person that's already broken from a childhood like you said the tornado trauma the poverty losing his twin dad in jail losing his mother when he was still, you know, not even, I think it was 21, all these things broke him and coming from a family that already had a second side. I think his mother was probably bipolar and I think Elvis was. So Elvis was a wounded healer who had the ability to use magic. And so that all made, he was in control. He was the shaman. And I don't think there was any other way. It's just, he was always in control. Right. Right. And of course, with his passing came all of the alleged uh, conspiracies about his, uh, you know, faking of his death, even down to his death certificate, seeming to have his own handwriting on it. I mean, that's the freakiest one. Well, and could that be 
more evidence to your point about it being a ritual, knowing that he was going to die, he signed his own death certificate ahead of time. I mean, is that would be surprised, but yeah. that's the one that makes that's the one thing that makes me jump up because there are you know several experts on handwriting who are like, yeah, this is Elvis. It's wow. very possible it's Elvis. So wow, wow, yeah. That's the rest. Take it with a grain of salt, as I would. I don't think they they fly. I really do think he left, but there's so many, you know, strange ones. You know, right. So many conspiracies, but none of them really passed the muster as far as I'm concerned. Well, and as you pointed out, the Graceland website has an entire, um, you know, culmination or collection of, of alleged sightings. So people who want to hear that, they could go and check that out. Maybe I'll talk about that in the extended outro. But when it comes to Elvis Presley, as far as being, you know, this trailblazer, blazer. He's not the first celebrity to die young, but he's definitely the first celebrity to have this string of conspiracies about him. Do you think that's due to him entertaining conspiracies while he was alive? Or do you think that was just the flavor of the 70s and it kind of built up through the fandom and just this egregore that he created? I'd say the latter. I think he was, again, America's magician. He was this country shaman. It was a... Day after he died, 80,000 people showed up at Graceland. That's, a, you know, the, Jimmy Carter talked about heads of state showed up at his funeral. I mean, you don't understand. Nobody gets that. Again, if Taylor Swift died, that wouldn't happen tomorrow. You know, I don't want to, you know, God forbid, but, or anybody else. But there, if Dwayne Johnson died, he would not get that treatment. It was just like, it's unheard of. And it won't happen again in this history. And yeah, the sightings happen. The weird, strange things happened around and in, in Graceland and all this other stuff. But I, I don't think it was just. What was your question? I'm getting. I'm. I'm thinking of Graceland. <laughs> well, I just got. As you said that, I wonder. You know, if there are any ghost sightings at Graceland of Elvis. But I was just sort of making a point about how Elvis was. You know, the first of many celebrities yeah. to get this kind of conspiracy rap and i'm just wondering you know what's your thoughts on if that was sure. you know what i mean was. let's think about it obviously james dean there were right. some conspiracy marilyn monroe there was some conspiracy there still are those haven't ended but elvis it was just a gigantic it was again a whole cottage industry right. of specials documentaries books articles it, it, even today there's still books coming out on what how he possibly died. It was just, it's like never before I've seen. I mean, yeah, the only other individual that comes close might be, yeah, JFK, as far as I know. Before that, I don't know, King Arthur, Jesus Christ. I mean, what did somebody say? Jesus was history's first murder mystery dinner. <laughs> wow. But yeah, it was. it's like nothing you've seen. And again... The tabloids, everything. I mean, people talk about it in movies. It just, it just never ended. And yeah, there are other celebrities. I mean, Jim Morrison. There was certainly he had a lot of attention after his death. People thought he faked it just to go live in Africa. But you know, the size of Elvis, there's never been anything like it. And the the shock to the nation, to the psyche of the world. Well, and 
tell us a little bit about some of his trickster antics because if you put it in line with that it might not be so far-fetched that he would pull this kind of massive and final prank <laughs> yeah well by now he'd be like 82 i don't know what's the point of coming out right, right. i'm alive <laughs> i don't have teeth uh I mean, he definitely, uh, as I go in the book, he embodies, I go, I have a huge breakdown of the trickster archetype and Elvis falls into it. I mean, again, in um, native cultures, there's this being called the changer. Uh, some call him the moon, some the coyote, the beaver. And this being comes from somewhere else and he's going to change you. And there's nothing you can do. You can fight him. You can try to kill him, whatever he's going to. The more you fight him, the more he will change your body or your surrounding. He's going to throw your world upside down. That's what the trickster does, and that's what Elvis does. And the trickster is always a helper of humanity, but he also comes at a price. He always exists in the liminal places, and he's always somewhat amoral, and he's always a bringer of new art and new education and new forms of thinking to those he changes over and over again. Elvis certainly falls under, you might say, the trickster category. But viewed from that lens, there's many lenses I propose. Again, the American Egregore lens, the trickster lens, the shaman lens, oh, the magician lens, and whatever the reader wants to take. Because at the end of the day, we can come up with all these labels. I, I keep going back to just Elvis Presley. There's nothing, nobody like him. There's, there isn't. Right, right. Yeah, no, he was certainly a phenomenon for someone who never traveled, right? I mean, he traveled obviously around the, the United States and a little bit in Canada, but he never went and did like a world tour, but he's beloved around the world. Yeah, he went to Canada, I think, a couple of times. But yeah, it's, he obviously was stationed in Germany while right, in the Army, right. but he was pretty constrained. I mean, it's not like he could do what he wanted to do. But yeah, he never... He always wanted to the world, but I think he, I think he didn't do it because I know it sounds strange, but two things that Elvis always needed: one was his pills, and the other was his guns. He didn't, <laughs> even though he had four black belts, and people had seen him do stuff with his feet that were just lethal. In fact, there were times when he took people down like effortlessly. When I was at Graceland, they showed me the chandelier that was eight feet tall with broken chains. And the lady was like, oh, Elvis did that and found it amusing. But he was always armed to the teeth. So I don't think he, unless these countries were going to give him, allow him in his private jet to do all the things. I mean, even when he went to visit Nixon and he went to, and he went to visit J. Edgar Hoover, the Secret Service forgot they took out is like one of those movies like The Matrix where yo God what is this just putting guns on the table and he went they forgot his like ankle holsters and he's like haha you forgot Nixon's like oh don't shoot me in the Oval Office don't shoot me so I think that's it he was always yeah he was always armed whether he was high or sober. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, he had a, a DAA or DEA badge that he got through Nixon is, you know, charmed Nixon into getting him a, an honorary DEA badge. What do you think was behind that? Do you think it was just to add to his collection or do you think that he was trying to use that maybe to get across the border? That's what Priscilla thought. Priscilla thought it was all a stunt. 
again, for your listeners that might not know, he got in a fight with his father about money because he was always spending. I mean, he would buy like fleets of motorcycles for friends or, you know what I mean? He just didn't care. And so he flew the coop. He left Graceland and nobody knew where he was. And people saw him for, he got a friend in LA and he was on a passenger side. And then he shows up at the white house with a note. He gets it. The note gets to some eighth and the, the note uh, gets to Nixon. And in a day or two, he's, meeting with Nixon. Again, no celebrity would be able to get away on a two-day note or a day notice to see the president of the United States. No, only Elvis could have done it because he was bigger than Nixon. Or as somebody said, in those days, the two most isolated people in the world were Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon in 1970. So they kind of had in common. So Elvis, you know, there's a movie, I think, called Elvis and Nixon, and it's pretty fun if you get a chance to watch it because it does show what they talked and what they did. But Elvis had an obsession with badges, and Priscilla thinks that the one badge you wanted was the DEA badge because if you have a DEA badge, you can leave and come into the United States with drugs or guns, no questions asked, and that's what he Elvis wanted. He didn't want to be bothered. He was the king. He just wanted to do, even the president of the United States can't walk around with drugs and guns. He wanted to be the top guy. And it was honorary, and then he sort of let it go. But he was collecting badges. But as I say, I think a lot of it has to do with control because he had been, his father had been put in jail. He'd live under such poverty. He lived in a very unfair society. I mean, one time he almost got killed because he dated a black girl in Mississippi. You know what I mean? He felt that the badge was a symbol of freedom. Like nobody would mess with him or his family. He didn't have to be this poor white trash anymore. In fact, the 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 clue is because he went for that badge on the night he got in a fight with his father. Mm. The authority figure hit him. He got angry and he wanted to prove to his father I'm in control. Nobody's going to touch us. We're going to be fine. So psychologically, that's my theory. Again, Priscilla thinks it's because he wanted the drugs and the guns. <laughs> yeah, well, and he also seemed to like to to play cop. You know, he, he played the role of like civilian law enforcement, jumping in and traffic incidents and directing traffic throughout Memphis, right? He just kind of liked to get out and do stuff like that and be, be yeah, in the public eye as a hero. Yeah, yeah, he doubled as a cop or a secret agent. I mean, right. there was like one story. Yeah, you mentioned he would direct traffic. He would, if somebody was speeding, he would stop them and write him an autograph and say, hey, man, just don't speed. And one time the DA said, you can come with us on a drug bus. But he took forever to get dressed. He had to get a mask. He had to get a top hat, a long coat. He had like a fake cigar because he didn't want people to know him. His bodyguards are laughing. He gets to the scene of the crime. They've already arrested all the drug dealers. He goes to the police station in costume, and all the cops are like, but, you know, he didn't care. Or there was a one time, is my favorite one, is that he was in Vegas, and one of his employees stole from him like $20,000 in his jewelry. And jewelry. So Ellis finds out, and he and the Memphis Mafia go to the Vegas airport. They show up and then I was like, all right, everybody spread out. Let's find him. He goes to the gate where the guy is and the plane is leaving. And Elvis is like, Ugh. Elvis goes out into the tarmac and puts out one of his badges to the pilot in front of the plane. And the pilot's like, oh, my God, what the? 
Elvis Presley's in the tarmac waving me down. So the pilot stops, lets Elvis in, and Elvis gets the wrong plane. <laughs> it was in the wrong plane. Oh, but then he man. finds the guy. He eventually finds the guy. And uh, there's two stories. One, he's like, you know, it, the public story is he scolded the guy, got his money, guy fired him. And the other one, the other one is the guy started crying about money. And Elvis got really emotional because he remembered being poor. And it's like, well, why didn't you just ask? I would write you a check. I write big checks to anybody who asks. And Elvis started crying and they got, they hugged and he rehired the guy that stole from him. So he had a really big heart. He was a wonderful person. But think about this. Do you think if, again, Dwayne Johnson or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Leonardo DiCaprio went out and stopped a plane, what do you think would happen to them today? <laughs> They'd be arrested on the spot. Right. Social well, media would let past them. I mean, it would be a hailstorm. With Elvis, it was like, it's just Elvis, you yeah. know? He broke federal laws by doing that, you know, and stopped a plane from, this, from you know, even back then you couldn't do these things. There was one time he got taken in. He showed up to go on a plane, a, a commercial plane, and he's like, can you just bill it to Elvis? And she's like, okay. And she, she she's asking the standard questions. Well, do you have this and do you have that? And he's like, yeah. And he's got all these guns. So the lady's like, oh, got to call airport security. Even before TSA, this was serious stuff. So they take him back, and they're like, Elvis. He's like, well, what if I write you guys a couple autographs? And they're like, okay. So they write him autographs, and they let him on the plane just armed to the teeth. Again, nothing, nobody could do this today. It's like he was on this magical world that you and I could only imagine. You know, you could do things that are just both magical. Like I said, if he was out... And they were like, the weather, it was in Hawaii and it was cloudy. He would do this. And he could part clouds. And he would do that all the time. Stop rain. I mean, he was just, he was on a level of, on a level of his own, Mark. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, Hawaii, that's a whole nother dimension to it all. He wrote songs that kind of took people to that kind of holiday in their mind. You know, it's a big part of American culture back then, the vacation, right? I'm sure he played a part in that. But it's interesting to hear you speak of him as such a kind person. I almost expected that not to be the case, just out of the sheer fact that he's a celebrity, and that tends to be the case. But it is, with Elvis, the case that he was very kind and generous, juxtapose that with this memphis mafia that surrounded him what was that all about i mean was he like a merry band like peter pan and his you know kind of you know uh, misfit crude stealing from the rich and giving to the poor is that kind of the motif with this memphis mafia who were they well there were friends and family and people he that were with them in the army and he just hired them that's you know that's normal you see nba players will hire their neighborhood and give them jobs and again all these people grew up with him in dirt you know in terrible poverty there were blue collar people who survived the great depression and they became his entourage or he became their cult leader i mean it wasn't easy like they say when elvis slept they slept when he was awake they were whatever elvis asked for had to be done 
But he did take good care of them. He brought them out of poverty. They had very good lives and they were in charge of everything. And it was it was a big entourage. And yeah, that was really it. It was just his inner circle of friends and family who, who did things for him. And yeah, no, it's interesting. Maybe the word mafia has a, it was a darker theory. connotation in my mind. But yeah, no, that, that makes he sense. He did rub shoulders with mobsters while he was in Vegas, but that's, you know, it was Vegas. Right, was just, right. Yeah. Evidently, yeah, that would be the case, especially back then. Now, when it comes to the weirdest sort of stuff are there any elvis sasquatch elvis portal elvis anything beyond the ufo like a weird conspiracies verified or not anything that kind of is worth noting about elvis anything strange there is the weather changing ability which is really it's a shamanistic thing if anything but definitely mystical is there anything aside from that stands out Oh my God, there's so much. I mean, I go through all the different conspiracy theories. I go through between 10 and 20 sightings. And of course, there's hundreds, there's thousands of them. I go through all his magical yeah, abilities, healing, out-of-body experiences, mystical things. I mean, there's so much. And again, I tie it to shamanism. For example, Elvis was obsessed. Again, heaven and hell, the crossroads. He was obsessed with birth and death completely obsessed with it i mean he there was one time you went to the hospital with a friend and this young mother came in and she was in labor and she was in so much pain and elvis was like hold on honey and he puts his hand and started doing things and suddenly her her contractions feel great she's happy but then the doctors are like we got to do delivery and the young mom's like come in elvis and i was like i finally get to see a birth remember this is the 60s and 70s dudes were not allowed into the room in those days and he's like i want to go and the doctors are like no you can't go you can't go but he loved birth but he also was obsessed with death i mean he would go at night one of his obsessions was going to cemeteries and going to morgues he would go and hang out at morgues there was somebody said a friend died and the guy was gonna do was gonna fix the body and bomb and all and elvis sat there and meticulous knew everything that was supposed to be done to this body again the egyptian thing he knew how to prepare a body like a doctor and there's stories of him going into uh, mortuaries at night there was one time he would and again it was always armed to the teeth and with the memphis my one time he's with priscilla and he's looking at bodies and wondering about bodies and he, they see this little baby that had died and priscilla cried so he and elvis so Elvis and Priscilla sit there and just start praying and praying for the baby's soul and being very nice to this poor body of a dead baby. He was obsessed with death because that's what shamans do. They're always going into the portal of death and birth and reborn. And Elvis was no different than that. He loved the dualities, the crossroads of life and death. Well, and isn't there a pyramid that's associated with him somewhere? Is it in Memphis or? Obviously? There is, but I think that's after, I think that was built in the 80s. Okay. Yeah, that's, there was none like that when he was. When he was alive. Now, yeah, what, unless, it, no, yeah, it was the 80s or what, 90s. Where is uh, Elvis buried? Is he buried at Graceland? 
Yeah, I actually visited the crib and the energy there was was incredible. I mean, and every time a woman would sit at the, I watched for like half an hour. Every time a woman would stand over a grave, she would start crying regardless of her age. It was just like a pillar of light coming in. And yet he's buried next to his uh, brother, Aaron, and then his father and mother. When he first died, they put him in a cemetery. But of course, within a day, people are trying to grave rob his body. Mm. Shocking. So he had to be put back at Graceland. So that's where he is. It's it's something else, really. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. My, my mother's parents, when my grandfather was alive, went to Graceland. And uh, my Pepe was impressed with the pink Cadillac. He sat inside of it. And my grandmother, who is still alive, she mentioned that she was impressed with the furniture. It was covered with fur everywhere. And the fact that oh, he... So yeah, he had four TVs, like, all next to each other, so you could watch, like, I don't know, multiple things at once or the same thing on four screens. I mean, she thought that was impressive. But, you know, I think Elvis is really somebody that I didn't expect to be this rich in this kind of esoteric American occultism. It's something that, you know, I've recently, in the past few years, really come around to diving into and, and understanding that America is not this kind of secular or Christian nation, you know, it's neither. It's a huge melting pot. I think people really don't take that word and understand it. They think race, what, culture, but mysticism and religion and occultism are deeply steeped in this melting pot that is America. And I mean, Memphis is right at the heart of it. I mean, really, it's the heart of America in many ways, especially the, the music of America. And yeah, Elvis, I mean, he's an icon and will be probably for hundreds of years. I mean, the way they talk about mythological figures now, you, you might imagine he could be talked about in a thousand years. But on that note, are there any mythological, maybe like, I don't know if Orpheus is a, an example, of, but someone, I heard you call him like the Pied Piper, but are there any kind of mythological people, characters that you would compare Elvis to? Yeah, I'd say Hermes. Hermes, definitely. definitely. I Any tricks to God, Orpheus is good, Dionysus, I mean, yeah, people forget Hermes was very sexual and sexy to women, obviously Dionysus, by the way, Elvis could, he almost, he almost one time did get torn apart by women because he said, who wants to come with me to the hotel during a concert and... But yeah, he could awaken people, women's sexuality and passion and even mind, I mean, he, he really respected. Although he was terrible at relationships, he really loved being with women and working with them spiritually, you know, meditation and other things. Yeah, a lot to look up to in Elvis, a lot to look into as well. And yeah, somebody who has been, you know, colored a certain way, I mean, rightly as far as drugs go, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that on anyone, but... There is the argument that was kind of pushed on him. Obviously, doctors were, you know, as you pointed out, an authority to many of that generation. Even the boomers, to a large extent, think that way. I mean, uh, my family thinks I'm crazy just because I smoke pot. And then two years ago, the government says it's okay, and now nobody cares. I mean, it's uh, it, <laughs> things certainly change, right? And yeah, I, I think Elvis is just fascinating, but. Let's pause for a moment and take a quick break for our ad sponsor break. 
If you'd like an ad-free experience of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, sign up on Patreon or Substack, and you can also support the show on Rockfin to enjoy this podcast ad-free. Until then, you're listening to these ads. On a different note altogether, I was really stunned to see you recently have Arthur vs. Lewis on Aeon Byte Radio because his book, The Philosophy of Magic, was one of the early books I found at a young age and it really just stuck with me. I think it was Arcana Press or Publishing. That's at least the, the copy I had. And it just, yeah, I mean, the thumbprints and the worn book, I mean, it's one of those books on my shelf that really you could tell I've beat it up. And I was surprised to see him there because, you know, just in my own ignorance, sometimes I see a name like that and I just expect him to be some 19th century guy that's, you know, but no, he's alive and well and still kicking it on yeah. Aeon Bite. And that was so cool to see that. And you know, Elvis kind of plays in, of course, to this American egregore, but any thoughts on, you know, Arthur versus Lewis's work? I mean, his was, uh, that book, Philosophy of Magic, was so influential to me, and I'm sure it was to you. Yeah, yeah, no, he's put out some great books, and obviously he's a big friend of the Gnostics. He's, as you said in the show American Gnosis, he makes a very good case that Gnosticism is American as apple pie or Elvis. Elvis was certainly very much a Gnostic, and he goes through the history of the you know great thinkers, Emerson and Herman Melville and all these others and other great American writers and artists that shaped this country. And how our, our psyche is very, in a way, very Gnostic. So... I don't know if he knows much about Elvis, but he's done great work. And I mean, my favorite book is, was it The Return of the Inquisitions, where he talks about how totalitarianism and mind control really started with the church fathers and Christianity trying to, to, to oppress and reveal the Gnostics 2,000 years ago. And this got weaponized and taken, obviously, as some of your listeners know, the Inquisition uh, didn't start against Jews or women. It started against the Gnostics, the Cathars. Then it moved on as a weapon, and many of the totalitarian leaders, whether they were communists or Nazis, they knew of the tricks of the Church Fathers, of mind control and all that. So, yeah, he does great work. He knows how to hit some great niches and bring out a lot of gems out for the reader. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you, you mentioned that title of his because it does connect into the Elvis theme of our conversation. Obviously, he pointed out how the evangelical Christian community pointed, you know, they're, they're, they lashed out at Elvis because of his, you know, degeneracy, which was, yeah. you know, so light in comparison. I mean, really, if we look at this now in hindsight, you could think of it as ushering in or kicking off this domino effect. So, were they right to think Elvis was this they bad right. influence? They were right. He was bringing subversive shamanistic energies that were upending culture. Right. And again, scholars have said that Pentecostalism is just American shamanism, blow mm. by blow, how it moves and everything else. And when, as I mentioned, Pentecostalism was playing with these sexual magic energies, no doubt about it. 
Elvis just took it to like 11, if you would. And they were right. America was changing. This was a new America. We were more open to music. We were more open to alternative spirituality, drugs, martial arts. You know, that's the America that Elvis is, is and I hope we could get back to this more open-minded, inclusive, innovative, and in a way, goofy and extroverted America that we were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and if history does work in cycles, we might have to go through, through some rough decades to, to get to another 60s, right? The, the swinging 60s. But yeah, it does seem like that might be the case. But either way, I really love your take on this subject, Miguel. I love the perspective you bring to a biography on someone like Elvis and I don't know that the typical Elvis fan is going to necessarily love your book, but I think you're going to bring a lot of people to become Elvis fans who might not have necessarily, you know, known that they liked Elvis. I certainly gave it a try. I listened to some Elvis today and I found her, I forget if it was the harem, harem something. It was like a desert theme. Oh my God. It was yeah. like a desert theme. Bad movies. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I, I picked it cause I saw the word kismet in one of the, that was one of the songs and I, it was a neat song, you know, it was dated for sure, but I've still got to look through the Elvis. Elvis archives and see what I really jive with. But yeah, this is a really fascinating topic. Now, the book is finished, but it's still in the works, right? So what are we thinking as far as when it will be available sometime next year, hopefully? Yeah, I'd say in about a year or so. Yeah, because I just, I turned everything in and it's a big publisher. They're really going to push it. It's going to be in libraries and stores. So they're going to take their time for sure. And there's still going to be some editing and stuff like that. Well, I really appreciate you uh, letting us have sort of an early look into this subject. And yeah, I definitely would like to have you back on when I get my hands on the book. and We can talk about this and more. Uh, our friend Ronnie Pontiac is opened this whole window into American metaphysics, right? I mean, his book is like a compendium of history. And yeah, I think Elvis might fit into his next edition if he goes and makes like a since then and when he left off. But anyways. Yeah, even Mitch, Mitch Horowitz, you know, he's did America, occult America. All right. these, and I made, I gave him so much shit about him last summer when we were hanging out. It's like, where's Elvis? Because, you know, he was the biggest Elvis fan, and he grew up without money, so he, he worked as a teenager, saved up to buy an Elvis concert. It was the dream come true, and, you know, a few days out before he was the concert, he died. Wow. So Mitch is, speaking of haunted and being the <laughs> biggest Elvis fan, I'm like, well, didn't you? What happened? You haven't included Elvis in all your books. You're in all your He's like, guess we're ready now yeah. and he loved the book i gave him a, a rough draft and he was like this is it this is the elvis you know because he, he, he always he's mitch is always like i'm the number one elvis fan in the world and i believe him <laughs> right on well i think he's one that will accept this book with open arms i definitely look forward to it and on that note are there anything is there anything else in the works that you're you're looking to promote? Obviously, the Astronosis Conference is something that you put on, an awesome uh, in-person get-together. Yeah, I, that will be next summer. Yeah, right now it's just Gnostic 
stuff I'm sharing on the website, courses, books, your listeners can go there. I do hope my next book, I want to, again, the world has also missed David Bowie. I realize there's a lot that missed about David, but Elvis 2.0. So I'm working on, well, I can't work on it because every time I start working on it, something bad happens to me. Seriously, Mm. I, I like get a book. And the cotton, I'll get sick within an hour, or I'll start writing notes about David Bowie and I'll twist my knees. I'm like, Elvis has not given me, Elvis and David have not given me the green light on this one. So I'm going to wait. Yeah, I would honor that sign or at least be take it as a warning. Yeah, that's strange. I had a similar thing happen with HP Lovecraft and. Just out of nowhere, got this really weird fever. And it was on the yeah. podcast. People can listen to that episode. I was, I turned the camera off. I was like literally like falling over. I could hardly sit. I mean, it was awful. And no, no slight against the guests. It was a great guest, but just the subject matter put this yeah. thing in my mind. But. Anyways, Miguel, it's always a pleasure having you on this show, and I'm a big fan of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, so uh, folks, of course, go and check that out. If you haven't already, I've been a guest on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, I'm proud to say, so maybe check that episode out first. Uh, of course, Arthur vs. Lewis was a guest, check that episode out, and you've talked about uh, Elvis. I don't know if this was on the Patreon feed or, or on the free feed, but you're on Recluse's podcast talking about Elvis as well, so there are other places people can go if they want to hear more Elvis until the book comes out. But uh, until then, folks, thanks for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that was our conversation with Miguel Connor. Sign up on the Patreon or Substack or Rockfin to get the entire conversation as well as my deep dive going into uh, Elvis's UFO abduction as well as the alleged secret society status of Elvis. Was he a Rosicrucian? Was he a Freemason? Was he an occult? We'll find out in the extended outro. Sign up today to get the full My Family Thinks I'm Crazy experience. Shout out to everybody who's signed up recently and shout out to everybody leaving kind comments and uh nice messages i really appreciate it i hope everybody has a happy thanksgiving this week here in the u.s and canada what do you guys have your thanksgiving did you have it already i think it's in october right so whatever sorry sorry i missed it (laughs) and around the world have a happy american thanksgiving from me to you but the majority of you i think are in america so we'll just say thanks Happy Thanksgiving if you're listening to this show this week. And we've got a review, five stars. Mark, I love your podcast, dude. They get me through the workday. I love hearing that because I used to listen to podcasts when I was a delivery driver. And that's what inspired me to quit my job and start doing this. And thanks to you guys, I can do this full time. And if you guys sign up on the Patreon and help us reach this 250 uh, person goal when we have 250 people supporting on the Patreon, I will start a in-person interview show. So look forward to that. Uh, but back to the review. 
says, I love your podcast. They get me through the workday and definitely get my mind open up to a lot of things. Being in Connecticut, also, I do want to make time to hit all the landmarks you mentioned throughout your episodes when you speak of exploring Connecticut and stuff. It was great to meet you at the opera. Sean. Oh, awesome. Shout out to you. <laughs> and yeah, we were not at an opera. So we are at Sam Tripoli's comedy show at the uh, Broadbrook Opera House in Broadbrook, Connecticut. So, but yeah, tons of awesome stuff here in Connecticut. Uh, my New England research is going deeper and deeper, and I just released a new article on Substack that is a part of my larger uh, study into Strange New Haven and the Order of Skull and Bones. So if you're interested in that, don't sleep on it. Sign up on the Patreon at the $8 tier and you get both the Substack and the Patreon for one price. Or if you just want the articles and the podcast feed, you can sign up on Substack. But I don't post all of the bonus stuff on Substack just out of uh, (laughs) not having enough time to, but I will have more time as the um, weather gets colder and go out less and, you know, yada, yada. So anyways, this has gone on long enough. If you want to hear more, sign up on the Patreon or the Substack. And until then, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad for rough spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy. You might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade